Morena whānau. And never has there been so many of my whānau here in one go, so that's a little bit hard and a little bit scary, but that's all good. <laughs> um, now I'll just get myself all adjusted. It's going to be a long one. Joking. I've got them. Uh, I'm just going to pray before I start. Father God, just uh, may the words that I speak today May people's ears be opened and may the dross fall away from all the words that I say and the things that you need, the seeds planted, may they be planted in people's hearts. And I thank you for this opportunity. I praise you, God. Amen. All right, this morning. Now, Philippians, I think it's week six. We've had five other people um, speak on Philippians um, verses one, and this is in the middle of chapter two. And we've got, I think, another 10 to go. Um, so, yeah. So, I'd like to start off by... Um, there we go. Why I chose this verse. This will be familiar to a few people who were here <laughs> a few years ago. 33 years ago on Friday, Andrew and I were married. And I know there's a lot of other people in this room with lots more years than us, um, and a few with less, but yeah, the, we, had the, we had the whole of chapter two was a, was a scripture that we had read at our wedding. And um, I cho we chose it all those years ago. Um, it was because it spoke to us about how relationships should go. And Paul was sharing these words to the Philippians in a letter um, to express that same sentiment, he wanted to guide the Philippians on how their relationships should go. So these words, written nearly 2,000 years ago, in the year 62 BC, uh, AD, are still relevant today. Uh, we have to have the attitude, like Jesus, of tenderness, humility, compassion, and putting others first which was some of the scripture from last week, from the beginning of Philippians 2. These things are beautiful and they're really worthy to aspire to in all relationships, uh, but they're hard to maintain all the time. Whether it's in a marriage, in a workplace, or within families or church, having the mind of Christ is a challenge. Now... I'm going to read, so there's these, I'm going to, got two versions here, I'm going to read the scriptures out to you of what we're actually talking about today. So the first one here, Philippians, so this is only 5 to 11, there's only six verses, so it's not too bad. Your attitude should be the same as that of, Jesus, of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, 
being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that as the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And then the next um, slide is the same, exactly the same. Well, it's not exactly the same. It's from the message version, which just gives it a slightly more modern um, way of looking at it. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status, no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he led a selfless, obedient life, and he died a selfless, obedient death, the worst kind of death, that of a crucifixion. Because of that obedience, God lifted him high and honoured him far beyond anyone or anything, even ever, so that all created beings in heaven and on earth, even those long ago dead and buried, will bow and worship before this Jesus Christ and call out in praise that he is the master of all to the glorious honour of God the Father. Some of the words we sang earlier reflected some of those sentiments, which was great. So having the mind of Christ is a real challenge because we don't have the God bit in us. One of the many commentaries I read made an interesting comment. In society today where Christianity seems to have lost its grasp, it's no longer influences as it did. If we were actually more Christ-like, not seeking power and control, but to serve and identify with the most vulnerable, now this is Christ-like. Okay. Oh, I keep forgetting to do that. Where do I point it? Right. Now, when I first started doing this sermon, I was quite excited because it was, you know, the verse that we'd had at our wedding, blah, blah, blah. And then I read, the diversity of opinion prevailing upon interpreters regarding the meaning is enough to fill students with despair like an exploding supernova. <laughs> I thought, oh my goodness, what have I done? But what they're actually referring to is that actually if we go back a couple of slides, go back to that, um, that, that verse, you'll see that, and if you see in your Bibles, it's sort of like there's normal letter stuff, like writing a letter, da-da-da-da-da, and then... And at the bottom, there's more letter stuff. But you'll see in the middle, that middle bit, verses 7 and 6 and even 9, it's sort of more like a psalm or a poem. Or sometimes they, actually, they think it could have been a hymn, an ancient hymn that they had written, um, that, that Paul had either written or translated. Um, so they were referring to the, some of the style as some of the confusing bit. Um, so that is... Um, it might be a first century hymn, it might not be. These are the words of the hymn. Are you fixing this for me? The battery might be flat. 
whether these words are hymns. They differ from the surrounding text and they stand out. They are actually the key to the whole of Philippians. And they seem to, they actually, for me, turn out to be the key to our Christian life as well. So if I was going to have a title for today, it would be the key. I'm not here to debate the differences. They differ from the surrounding text, but I'm like, oh, where are they? I'm not here. They, there is no dispute. Paul wrote this letter, and he wrote it to the Philippians. Now, we're going to do a quick recap. A quick recap. So Philippi was a Roman garrison town in Greece. Um, at that stage, Rome hadn't quite reached its full extent that it was going to influence the world. It was still in the middle of its take-conquering mode. Um, and so there were Roman soldiers there, and there was this, a different view of power. Paul was calling the Philippian church to be different, just as he calls us to be different from the world. And as N.T. Wright, who's a New Testament scholar, quite ironic, I thought N.T., New Testament, and his name's Thomas, but anyway. Um, Jesus was redefining power. Jesus was redefining kingship. These verses show us a model on how to be Jesus' followers. And also, and it was one of the first um, churches that Paul actually ever settled, so it was quite dear to his heart. The next one is, so this is a little diagram. I quite like this diagram. It's a really simple summary of the whole verse. If you remember nothing from this morning, remember this diagram, because it, it summarizes the whole six verses. It starts off with Jesus having equality with God. Then he empties himself, humbles himself. They don't actually say it, but he more than humbles himself. At the low point, he dies for us. But then God exalts him and then wants every knee to bow and every tongue to confess that Jesus is Lord. These words, if I was going to do a three-point sermon, and I'm not today because I just don't do that. Sometimes I don't do that sort of thing. <laughs> which is what the Baptist people say, do your three-point sermon. But this would be a really good way to summarise it. We could talk at Christ's humility, his humiliation, and then his exaltation. Or we could remember it by saying he was sovereign first, he was God. He became servant sacrifice, and then he became our saviour. One commentary said that these verses should be treated like Moses at the burning bush, and we should take our shoes off and... Um, because it's holy ground. They are the essence and the basis of our faith, and they show us who Jesus is. These verses are Christmas and Easter rolled into one. They are deep theology, yet they are so simple and practical. My summary is that this morning I get the privilege of sharing the gospel Gospel meaning good news. And we, uh, yeah, as I say, Christmas and Easter rolled into one. We're invited to meet Jesus, and we're invited to model the church and our lives on him. And as the theme for this whole sermon series is, is to live as Christ. So let's get started. Verse 5. 
in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ. We are invited. Not, I don't know if we're invited or we are commanded to have the same mindset of Christ. That is humility, compassion, tenderness, not our own interests. It's hard enough to understand what goes on the mind of someone else, people that we live with every day, let alone the mindset of God or a man who lived 2,000 years ago. Hence why we've got the Bible, and it's really helpful for that kind to get into and try and understand. We, if there is, and uh, we've been invited today, so that you hope take up the challenge with me as we explore the good news. So the first verse, next verse is verse six. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be to use in his own advantage. And in other scriptures it says something to be grasped. I'd like us to focus just on one word there, and that is the word nature. In other scriptures it has the word form. And it's the same word is used again in verse 7. Who being the very nature God. And then in verse 7, it's taking the very nature of a servant. They use the word in Greek, morphe, which for us is like metamorphosis, to change. But actually, it's sort of the opposite meaning. Morphe actually means the outward expression of, our, of an inner essence. It means the actual characteristics. So I've, we all know the monarch butterfly cycle. We all studied that as kids. Well, I used to love it. Anyway, seeing the eggs, then the caterpillar, then the chrysalis, and then the monarch. And each one of those things, we say that's metamorphosis. But actually, what this thing is, they're still monarch eggs, whatever stage it's at. It's still a caterpillar, a monarch. The essence of it is it's still a monarch, whatever cycle it's in. Our human life cycle is the same. We start off as a fetus, and then we become an, an embryo, then a fetus, and then we become a newborn, and we become a, a baby, and then a toddler, and then childhood, teenager, adult, that's, we're morphing, we're changing all the time. But actually, inside of us, we are still, in essence, we're just a human. We are human. That's our essence of who we are. So what the scripture is saying, that God was in nature, was in morph, morphe, he was God. And then verse 6 says he was, in verse 7, sorry, he says he was morphe, in very nature, a servant and a human. What I take from that, oops, I've gone backwards, is that who is Jesus? He's 100% God and he's 100% human, which is a mystery. It's, um, that is where our faith bit comes in. So Jesus is being described as God and human, 
Christian doctrine around that, in that God says that God became flesh, that God assumed a human nature and became a man in the form of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Christ was truly God and truly man. And this has a theological term, and it's called incarnation, to get flesh on. These two scriptures um, describe that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So right at the beginning, at Genesis, Jesus was there helping with creation. But then, in Matthew, we read, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. God is with us. So here we have Jesus who was a God and was at creation. Coming onto earth, his voluntary relinquishment of that deity, of that privilege that he probably lived and his acceptance of humiliation. Jesus did this willingly. He didn't grasp being God. He didn't come here wearing his underwear on the outside and being Superman. He humbled himself. He hung out with fishermen, with lepers, even women. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. What king does that? Most battles you see, um, Andrew doesn't like this, but I watch the Vikings, and um, there's lots of battles in that. And they're always trying to protect their king. They protect their leaders. Because once the leader's gone, the war's over. But no. What man wants to do that? What man wants to give their lives for other, and, and die in the way that he died? It's seen as a weakness. But this actually was his strength. The next verse... Next, um, while I was researching this, I found this poem. Um, it's a written, I won't read the poem out to you, but if you're interested, you can come and chat to me later. Oh, I've lost it. it was, it's all about, oh, it's called Jesus of the Scars by Edward Gilito. Um, and it's um, written by a, a World War I uh, soldier. And he just, and a commentator on that poem said, her name is Victoria Emily Jones. And in contrast to other gods of other religions, the Christian God Yahweh in Christ bled and died for his people and suffers still, bearing all humanity's hurts until the day when hurts will be no more. But even in this, his scars will remain as a badge of honour, a reminder of his sacrifice on our behalf. We all have scars of some kind, whether they're physical, emotional, or spiritual. They cause us pain. They mark us. What a solace to know that our God, being the compassionate one that he is, has scars too in the sense of suffering. He's not above us, but he's with us. He is our comrade in battle. Jesus defines love. He hung out with lepers, tax collectors, let women wash his feet with 
his hair, revere hair. He was countercultural. We don't deserve what Christ did for us. He humbled himself. Jesus was a willing servant. He washed his disciples' feet and served people. He healed people. He loved people, the sick. Jesus redefined love. He had a love, love that reaches out, up is adoration, love that reaches out is affection. I, do, I like this symbol, this, the picture of these words. And but a love that reaches down or stoops is grace. And if you remember the, the diagram, he gets to the bottom, that's grace. And grace is a free gift. God's grace is usually defined as an undeserved favor. And he humbled himself at his birth. He came as a vulnerable baby in a manger, not in a palace. And that is Christmas. In his life, as an itinerant traveller, preacher, healer, and lover of all people that he met. And in his death, the most horrible way imaginable, on a cross, lost to his father for for two or three days. That is Easter. It is only in modern times that the cross has been used as a necklace or a lovely way to decorate our Bibles, The cross is a symbol of death and pain. But it doesn't just stay that way. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name of Jesus. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We have risen from that lowest point in that diagram, and we're going up. Jesus has been incarnate as man, became flesh and human. He died suffering and rose again into the ascension, another big theological word. But the word ascension basically means the action of rising to an important position or higher level. That's from the Oxford Dictionary. God exalted him. And it tells us what to, how to behave as well. We are to bow and acknowledge him. Now, the other interesting bit about that passage was the word name. We were to exalt his name. It was mentioned three times. Now, the name of Jesus, in Jewish custom, they weren't even allowed to actually talk, mention the name Yahweh. They didn't talk about it, the I am. Jesus is described in the New Testament, 198 names the guy's got. Um, Jesus' name is, it's important. Um, He means something different to every single one of us. He is your teacher or your rabbi. Maybe he's your friend. Maybe he's the lamb of God, made a sacrifice for you, and you're grateful for that. Maybe you see him as the lion of Judah, your saviour, a historic reference to being a king. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the light of the world. He He says he is the bread of life. The list goes on. 
Names are really, really important. A few years ago, I actually found out the meaning of my own name. I was just down in the kitchen, and Matt Renata comes into the, office, into the kitchen and says, um, Kerry, do, you know do you know what your name means? And I go, oh, no, not really. I said, I've had a few ideas. He goes, oh, it means it adds value. I said, pardon? He goes, it means it adds value. The word makiri, for example, is grey. Ma is white, kiri. They join them together, you get grey. It adds value to white. Kitty, you never actually find it on its own. It's always in another word. It's adding value, like the waitakiris in Auckland, or um, <coughs> a kiriru. And another name that I'd like this morning is Micah. It means who is God, and um, who is like God. And a lot of people bring their babies, uh, don't, don't have dedications and don't have the same... Th christenings or things that the church does, but they put emphasis on someone's, on a child's name. So I'd like you to take a moment to consider what the name of Jesus means to you. It's used in so many derogatory ways these days, but God means it to be held in the most highest place. I keep referring back to the diagram. Equality with God, then he emptied himself, he humbled himself, humbled himself to death, but then he is exalted. This is Jesus' journey. We see how Jesus started as equal, he emptied, humbled, and even as far as death. God has now exalted him, he sits at the right hand of God, he is in a place of honour, and he's to be praised. That is the story of Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11. How should we respond to that? We're all invited to acknowledge who Jesus is. For me, that was on the 9th of April, 1983, at a Christian concert at Trafalgar Park in Nelson, the day before my 17th birthday. And Jesus has made a difference in my life. I'm constantly challenged and changed. I make mistakes daily, every minute, but I know that he forgives me. And even if I'm not good at forgiving myself or others, he wipes the sake clean. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies come every morning. They're new every morning. Jesus calls me to go places where people are in pain. I'm challenged to humble myself, to bring healing and prayer, and most of all, love. I can't do life without Jesus. Tim Keller puts it far more eloquently than me. The Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads me to deep humility and deep confidence all at the same time. As a church, we are called to role model Jesus just as the Philippians were called to. We need Jesus, and he has left his helper, the Holy Spirit, to help us with that. We need each other, and we need the Bible and good teaching. I'd like to finish um, by 
getting us in, in the newsletter, some of you would have received a church newsletter today, inside there's a thing called the Nicene Creed. It's just a statement of faith. Whether this is your first time of making a declaration that you know who Jesus is, whether you don't even want to do it this morning, take away that bit of paper and read it and consider who Jesus is. Consider what he's done and that he was a real human on this earth. He was a real God. He was 100% God. He was 100% man. And he loved us and he did this willingly. But then... I want us to read the Nicene Creed, a direct declaration of that faith. And I think it sums Philippians 2 verses 5 to 11 up beautifully. So if we read it together, I've got, I'll put it up on the screen. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I flicked it off. All right. So if we'd like to read it, if you don't want to read it, that's absolutely fine. But I know I read this, uh, we used to say this every Sunday when it grew, growing up in part of the liturgy in the Anglican church. And they're beautiful words, and they are, yeah, a declaration of our faith. So one, two, three. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God begotten, not made, one, one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. But by power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate of the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again, in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He was spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. So don't leave this place if you have questions. Don't leave this place if you want someone to pray with you or talk to you. There's prayer over in the corner here with people who would love to do that. There's people sitting right beside you who would love to do that. But let the good news be part of your life. Thank you.